before Rome existed, before there was a whisper of that great city, there was a king. This was a nervous king who felt uncomfortable on his throne and was very worried about usurpation. And that was a sensible thing for him to be worried about because he himself had usurped the throne. He'd forced his brother to become a minor magistrate and took over his brother's position as king. And because he was so worried about being re-usurped, he forced his brother's daughter to enter a religious order, which took vows of chastity. She promised to never lay with any man. But because the king was extra, extra nervous about any potential heirs coming along to threaten his position, he created a plan to have her killed. He raped her. This is his own niece. And when she began to show signs of pregnancy, he decreed that she had broken her vows of chastity. The thing about stories from a long time ago is that some things were viewed very differently. And for most of the years that we have history for, rape was sort of the fault of the woman. And this kingdom was no exception. The old king's daughter came up with a story to satisfy the community because if she made it known that the king had raped her, she still would have been killed. So she told everybody that it had been a god who had impregnated her. She told everyone that it had been Mars, the god of war, who had impregnated her. Now, this was a religious kingdom. And there certainly were people who thought this was ridiculous, but there were others who were far from sure. Maybe this woman really had been impregnated by the god of war. And it feels like a pretty bad idea to kill a woman who had been chosen by a god. You might get angry and start wars. So rather than agree with the king to put her to death, the community decided to keep her alive and put the baby to death when it was born. For some reason, they thought that the god of war would take this better, but maybe the true motivation comes from a more realistic place. Possibly some of the people knew what had happened and were determined to foil the king's plans. So they ensured that the daughter would still be alive, sacrificing only the child born of this unholy union. To everyone's surprise, it wasn't just one child born, but two children. When she finally gave birth, everyone saw that they were twins. But in the minds of most of them, this did not change anything. The children now would have to be put to, get to death. One soldier was tasked with taking the kids down to the river and drowning them, but the banks of the river had overflown since it was a heavy rain season. So rather than walking out to the middle where he could hold them underwater, the soldier just left the babies in a little cradle in the fast-moving shallow water, trusting that the river would bash them to death uh, on the rocks downstream. Luckily for the two boys, this didn't happen. They floated downriver to a calmer area and washed up on the shore into the waiting care of a she-wolf. The wolf had just lost her own cubs and was bursting with motherly instinct. So she took the twins in, kept them warm, and suckled them. This kept them alive for several days while they nursed themselves to a good level of health until eventually they were found by a farmer and his wife. The farmer's wife couldn't have any children, but the couple had wanted kids for a while, so they were excited to take the twins on and raise the boys as their own. 
the twins were precocious and willful, and they liked to fight. They would get into trouble, and as they grew up, so the trouble they got into grew bigger. After a large fight when they were teenagers, they were brought before the local magistrate. But fortune favored these children, because the magistrate was, by pure chance, their dethroned grandfather. He looked at the children and thought that he saw a bit of himself in them. He knew these boys would have been born about the same time as his quote-unquote murdered grandchildren had been. He wouldn't question the farmer, and the farmer admitted that the boys had been found near the river. Armed with this new excitement and a sense of purpose, the king revealed the boys' identities to them, and he asked them to help him reclaim his throne. These two charismatic young men rallied a small army and led it with their biological grandfather to dethrone his evil brother and rescue their sweet mother from his clutches. Their family would live happily ever after, and the kingdom had reclaimed. Until the boys left and started their own city, and then one of them killed the other over a disagreement. What? This is the weird, convoluted story of the founder of one of the most important civilizations in history. If it seems fantastical, that's because it is. Most of it almost certainly didn't happen this way, and a lot of it was made up of different stories that were stitched together in various fables to create a semi-cohesive narrative. It takes surprising left turns, it veers off on tangents, and the logic of individuals sometimes feels weird. Why kill the children if you thought they might be the children of Mars? What does it mean that the river was too overflowed that you had to leave the babies by the bank? Why did the arrival of two teenagers mean that you could now retake your kingdom? Why did they immediately leave their kingdom for a new city once they had been successful? Probably because this is at least five different stories stitched together by later historians to create a founder narrative. And the stories didn't end there with their departure from Rome. Romulus and Remus, the two twins in this story, would still have more adventures. The story goes that once they left their birth city, called Alba Longa, they went with a few hundred men to the bank of the Tiber downstream to found a new civilization. The brothers argued about which of the seven Roman hills to construct their city around. Romulus favored the Palatine Hill, and he began to construct low walls and dig trenches. Remus was still stinging about their disagreement, and he came over and jumped over these partially completed walls, mocking Romulus. And in a fit of anger, Romulus killed him, saying, So perish whoever shall overleap my battlements. It's good historical theater. Probably didn't happen. Now, Romulus and his men constructed a city, eliminated a potential rival for power, and had proven that they were a force to be reckoned with. But they were all men, which is problematic when you're trying to start a new city. So they looked around for possible mates. But this is a rowdy group of young men who followed Romulus to retake his throne. It's scoundrels and thugs and thieves and fighters, and fathers weren't exactly battering down the doors to give their daughters away to these people. The Romans went to the Sabines, which were a neighboring tribe, to ask for some of their daughters' hands, but they were completely rejected out of hand. They were hurt and annoyed by this rejection, and they went back to their city and immediately started plotting. 
They planned a massive dinner party, a big housewarming party for their new city. They invited the Sabines, the Abalongans, the VI, the Volscians, tribes from all around the areas. Everybody sat down to eat delicious roasted animals and any river tubers that they had acquired. And then at one point, a signal went up, and the Romans grabbed as many Sabine women as they could get their hands on. All of the tribes thought this was an attack, and they started running. And the Sabine men had run straight out of the city walls before they realized what had happened, and they were immediately furious. But Rome had shut its gates, and the Sabine men were in no state to attack Rome and retake their women. They were all drunk and full, and they didn't have their weapons with them. So they walked back to their city and began raising an army for the counterattack. The Sabines were a more powerful tribe than the Romans, but the Romans just had to defend, and they were planning on defending from the moment that they had thrown the dinner party. So it was a hard fight. Eventually, the Sabines managed to push the Roman forces back to the walls of their city, but it took years. When the Sabines finally arrived at the gates of Rome and started besieging the city, the Sabine women came out to them. But these Sabine women were no longer Sabine women. They had lived with the Romans for years, they had taken husbands, and they had had children. Their fathers were now attacking the fathers of their children, and they didn't want the fighting to continue. Defeated, the Sabines decided to forge an alliance and merge their two peoples. And the Sabines were folded into Roman society. And they even added a Sabine king to Romulus's rule. But lucky for Romulus, who wasn't super stoked about the idea of sharing power, this Sabine man was killed over a grudge. And so Romulus could go back to being a solo king. But after this incident, Romulus began to get a little irrational, a little aggressive, and a little crazy. He was difficult to work with. He got in such a mood that one time when a thunderstorm came, an entire legion Romulus was commanding ran to shelter under a rock while he stubbornly stood outside and berated the men for hiding. When the storm finally ended, Romulus was nowhere to be found, and he just disappeared into history. What's the takeaway here? It's probably a mistake to ascribe too much meaning to this story. As I said earlier, it's like stitching together a few different stories. The baby floating down the river is famous now because of Moses, but the Sumerian hero Gilgamesh had a similar story. The she-wolf that suckled the twins might have actually been a prostitute, since lupa, which is the word for she-wolf, also means prostitute as a slang. Some versions of the story don't include the twins' mother being raped by her uncle, but instead point to immaculate and possibly divine conception. There are different versions of almost every story that I've told here. But one of the pieces that I see as most compelling is how the Romans of the Middle to Late Republic viewed Romulus. He was a strong, ambitious, fratricidal, tactical, irrational, and mean leader. 
They didn't care if he was a good king, just that he was a strong king. That push and pull between what is right and good versus what is strong will be an important question throughout a lot of Roman history. Strong wins most of the time, but the Romans saw their high moral ground as being one of the core reasons for their success. This will be typified here in the distinction between Romulus, the strong but morally questionable king, and his successor, Numa, who we will talk about in next episode. Thank you very much, and I'll talk to you soon. 